Welcome to building a hundred million pound business in public. Four years ago, I was having lunch with my friend Logan when we half joked about racing to a hundred million. And it's always stayed in my head. What does it take to build a hundred million pound business? On this podcast, I ask my network and speak to VCs, founders, DNI specialists, marketeers, and more to share their top tips. Some have made it, some are on the way, and all have a story to tell. I'd like to welcome today Nectarios Leolios, uh, the co-founder and CEO of Startup Bootcamp uh, Fintech, and now the co-founder of the Future Farm, which is a community dedicated to healthy entrepreneurship. Welcome, Nectarios. Thank you for having me. Well, perhaps we can start off by you just telling us a bit more about yourself. Um, it's always difficult to ask this question to somebody who really likes talking about themselves. Um, I'm Greek, born in Germany, moved to London about 25 years ago. I'm 54. Um, I had uh, a very corporate life for the first 20 years of my life. And about pretty much 10 years ago to the day, um, literally close to the day, I had a transformational moment where I was invited to join an innovation team in my in my organization called Swift. And that opened my eyes to this other world. And gradually, I sort of left the corporate life behind. And at the end of 2013, I faced a decision if I wanted, because I wanted to leave Swift for a variety of reasons, which we can talk about. And it was either do my own thing or or go for another job, as most people do within the industry. And I just jumped, and that changed my life even more. So for the last few years, I've been getting in. I was involved with working with startups, building my own business, going through the roller coaster of everything. And, and yeah, that's maybe enough for the moment. But it must have been fascinating, because you must have seen through Startup Bootcamp and then through Swift, hundreds of, hundreds of businesses starting. Well... What I was doing at InnoTribe, and this is where my kind of, this is why why it's important for me to to tell that piece of my journey. So this innovation initiative called InnoTribe was the first mechanism to do something in fintech before it was called fintech. Uh, and mm. uh, it's always fun to mention the story. At the end of 2013, when I was recruiting, I was hiring people to launch Startup Bootcamp Fintech with me. Uh, my, my co-founder and COO, he thought fintech means technology from Finland. So um, we're talking about something that's now seven years ago, maybe just 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 under eight. So it's not that long ago that this thing didn't really exist as a concept, and now everybody does fintech. But uh, long story short, yeah, in InnoTribe, you already saw a lot of companies at a very early stage of their journey because I was managing a competition that we created, which was taking the most promising fintech startups or financial industry SMEs and put them in front of an audience in the industry to educate them. And so... I don't know, see in transfer wise, just after they raised their seed round in 2011, or some of the names that are our names, Revolut made it into the competition, Asimo, Market Invoice. So some of the names that are now established firms or unicorns we saw really early. And that just continued with, with Startup Bootcamp, of course, yeah. And, and that, clearly, you sort of enjoyed being in that space because that's what you then did next again with uh, Startup Bootcamp Fintech. Yeah, no, it's it's amazing to work with entrepreneurs. It's also great to be part of somebody's journey. And if you feel you can help them, it's it's wonderful. But you also realize that uh, people are people and they all come with their own baggage and their own ways of doing things. And there's ego and then there's 
let's just say if you do this for gratitude, you're clearly in the wrong business. So some entrepreneurs leave the program and they don't even acknowledge that they've been through the program. And other people come around and shake your hand and say, thank you, you made a difference. And you're, you're pleased that you can see the success or if they fail, which is also part of it, right? Uh, they just pick themselves up and do something new or something else. Um, it's a people business. Mm. It is actually. I, I was I was listening to a podcast by Brent Hoban the other day, and he said that for him it was about not asking, not giving people the answers, but asking the questions. And I, I wonder whether that resonates with what you've seen as well. Oh, to- totally. Um, and it's interesting because when you work with early stage founders or first time founders, in particular. They kind of, they come with this interesting mix of having a great idea and lots of questions, but also there's bravado and attitude. And that's where you realize that, that, that you need to find that line between confidence and arrogance. Mm. Uh, because one of the things you learn to appreciate is people actually asking questions or people listening to the guidance that they came to a program like Startup Bootcamp mm. to, to receive. Because if you figured it all out, you don't need an accelerator. You don't need a support mechanism. Um, so yeah, absolutely. And you become a coach and you become a mentor and you become a therapist and sometimes you become a parental figure, which I was not prepared for. Uh, you become all sorts of different things and people people respond based on their needs, but also what you make available, what you kind of signal that mm. they can find in a program. It, might, it must be, I mean, on, on a previous episode of this podcast, we talked about how it's hard to know who to listen to. You get so much advice. And at the same mm-hmm. time, you've got this balance of like being confident in where you're going, but at the same stage, flexible enough to change. And I suppose an accelerator program almost gives you all the people you need to listen to in one place. So we did two things. Uh, we brought mentors in to be the people that would talk to the startups, but we also got them through a program themselves mm-hmm. to be prepared on what good mentoring means. And it's it's the... You ask questions. You're not there to give answers. Uh, and good mentors know exactly what they do. And bad mentors or people who are inexperienced sometimes bring themselves too much in. On the other side, we would sit down with the founders and go, the one thing you'll hear a lot here is going to be opinions. And opinions mean absolutely nothing. So you need to slowly practice that skill of taking an opinion on board and really quickly just learning to verify is this an opinion or is a substance and asking the right questions back to figure out if you should take this seriously but they we overloaded people definitely mm. and some of it was also you will make mistakes you will follow the wrong path it's just part of life the question is how do you process recognizing it's a mistake brushing yourself off and just keep going mm. and, and and you mentioned a bit before about so how you've sort of fulfilled these different roles these people as well kind of like father figure mentor coach <laughs> etc and I, the personal side of the entrepreneur's journey is quite often sort of unacknowledged um, I mean, this is fast forwarding to what I'm doing now, ultimately. But the reason we founded the Future Farm was because both my co-founders and I have seen a lot of people building businesses and going through the journey without being prepared at all for the personal toll it takes, without having a language to articulate what's happening, mm. without having the feeling of giving themselves permission to acknowledge weakness, vulnerability, uh, and then experience the whole spectrum of mental health challenges. It could be simple things, it could be heavy things, but it could be also like, I mean, people, and we can give lots of examples, but uh, it, it, there was 
It was a real eye-opener for me when we actually ran the first program in London in 2014 to find out that people take drugs to keep themselves up and then they take drugs to keep themselves, to re help themselves relax. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was like, I was so naive. I thought clubs were, uh, sorry, drugs were related to clubbing and, but not that they're fundamental parts of you allowing you to function. Mm. Uh, we had people in the program who didn't sleep for days. So there was one particular guy who I had to send home or working with people who think that relaxation means going, I don't know, paragliding. And you go, okay, so you have the adrenaline kick in the office. And then in order to relax, you just chase the same adrenaline kick in a different environment. But you're not really switching off. You're not really giving your body or your mind a break. And, um, so these were the lighter things. And then you have people who kind of talk about suicidal ideation, who, whose relationships fall apart, who work through a variety of different issues and, and never talk about because it's not okay. Well, there's this kind of myth of kind of like the lone wolf entrepreneur, kind of hardcore, <laughs> burning candle at both ends, sort of, which, which probably isn't that helpful. So, so my big bugbear is, is not so much the fact that people have mental health problems. That's normal, right? And we have this in the general population, we're more comfortable talking about this and within entrepreneurship, maybe, um, maybe now a bit more, but it's that glorification of it, right? It's the fact that let's, let's take this apart. There's a personal side and there's a business side. There are people who have moved from an early stage startup to a scale startup to a growth company or refuse to acknowledge that the company is now, I don't know, 200 people. So we cannot be cool anymore. We need to have structure. We need to have profiles. We need to have an org chart. Um, but because in the head, it's not the startup life. It's not the way you do startup in whatever book they've read or weird assumption they're making. They're really reluctant to kind of grow up in that sense. Mm. But then there's, of course, the, the personal side where it's either the startup cliche of you work 18 hours, you sleep six and you live off pizza on a friend's sofa or the other one, which is the, the kind of, <laughs> I'm trying to be, not to use bad language, but it's all about partying and lots of girls and the big cars and the, the, the also kind of weird Silicon Valley uh, examples. And reality is most people don't have that life at all mm. with our programs because it was fintech and it was a mainly kind of b2b focus industry focus the majority of people we had in the program were in the mid 40s but still thinking that okay now because i've ditched the tie and i'm wearing sneakers and hoodies at in the office i need to be cooler or i need to do certain things it's it's a really messed up environment and you kind of go people why don't we just take a step back and and start with introspection try to figure out who are you and what you shouldn't change just because now you've decided to become an entrepreneur or you live in a startup life. It is interesting, like a couple of you I like, coach, they, they, this idea that as an entrepreneur, they need to step away from what made them successful. Like being an entrepreneur is different to being in business. And I, I did the same thing myself my first startup. I basically rejected everything that I'd learned to, in a multinational. And then I quickly learned over the next six months why all the things I'd stopped doing, I need to start doing again because there's a reason for it. So <laughs> I, imagine, I imagine you see that quite a lot. I think with people who've been in the corporate world, there's an element of kind of unbrainwashing. So get people to forget certain things, open people's eyes to the possibilities and opportunities that this new life affords them, right? And the lack of politics is one. 
uh, you can actually get to fast decisions and you're allowed to make mistakes and you can change the direction quickly and all that. So that's the beauty of it, right? So I don't think it's necessarily as binary as that, but it takes a while for people to learn what are the skills that they brought or learned in their lives. So, so if you look at an older person, somebody who's in their early 20s, and this is the first time they're doing this, or they've been attracted to a particular lifestyle, it's more recognizing that it's not sustainable just to be cool. At some point, you need to bring the substance in. At some point, you need to figure out that in order to deal, if you're selling to a large enterprise, you need to play the game to some extent without necessarily losing your authenticity. Mm. And what do you see around some other sort of traps for the for these first time or even second time entrepreneurs when they come into it? Um Traps. Traps, one of them is thinking you know it all. So one of the things that always fascinated me is is that kind of lack of humility, recognizing you have a lot to learn. And I admire people who go through this, make mistakes, and then kind of come back and try something new or kind of talk op- op- openly about their learnings. The companies that usually failed, um, failed because they really didn't know how to take feedback on board. And for me, this is one of the biggest qualities in a founder mm. is that awareness that if somebody gives a feedback, it's usually meant, comes from a good place, take it on board, process it, see if you can do something with it. Um, and it literally pretty much every single company that failed pretty quickly after an accelerator was because they just didn't care. And we saw this, like we, we talked to the CEO in our weekly one-to-ones and they would nod. And then we found out from the team members, the moment they left the meeting, they would go, yeah, but we're not going to do that. And you go, so there's one. The other one is there's ridiculous expectations. So, which is also fueled by the VC world. Right. So people coming in and thinking if my business is not going to be a hockey stick 10x type business, it's not a success. So one of the things I always thought was really interesting for me when we selected companies and we talked to the founders in the final phases was to get a sense for the big dream. And I loved it when people, and I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but there was this one guy who who literally said to us, I want to change the world by improving the portfolio, the the kind of the allocation of fixed income portfolio or something. So something that sounded so mundane and unsexy, but it was a genuine dream. And he literally wanted this to be part of changing the world. Hmm. And then you get the others who come in, where you know the only thing they want is flip it within a couple of years, get somebody to buy it, which is maybe acceptable and and kind of valuable in its own right. But for me, it was always a bit less, it didn't feel like they they came with the tenacity and that self-awareness that you need to succeed. So I like somebody who has a bit of a vision. Do do you think, tying that back to mental health, that do you think, did you see any correlation between people who are clearer on their vision with their ability to protect their mental health? Um, it all goes back to self-awareness. This is the main thing. And even now with the Future Farm, when we talk about, so we have a podcast ourselves called Naked by the Future Mm. Farm, and we invite entrepreneurs to talk very openly, very publicly about how they experienced uh, their their struggles, what were the signals they might have ignored or not, and how did they experience hitting rock bottom and how did they pick themselves up again? And it all goes back to kind of building a mechanism to scan yourself. Right. Um, there's a reason there's the, the, the rep line, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Right. Um, but, or, um, the, the, there's, 
There's something there for the ones who managed to navigate this better is because they had a mechanism that told them, okay, I need a day of removing myself or I genuinely need to take a break or I need to talk to somebody. Hmm. Something really interesting that we found in our research is that when you talk to entrepreneurs who acknowledge that there's a need for support, they usually don't get excited by the idea of talking to a coach or a therapist what they want is a conversation with a peer who's been through a similar situation. Mm. So talking to somebody is important. It's just talking to the right person. And so, so from what you've seen, then it's 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 about surrounding people with a, with a community, which probably ties into why why you launched uh, the Future Farm. Well, it's 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 a mix of things. It's because the question initially was, are people who are better at building a business or being more kind of aware of what they're building, are they also better at looking after themselves? I'm not sure if this line is, is if, if there is a clear line, but the key thing in all of this, when you talk about mental health for business builders is having an awareness that you need to scan your body, your environment, having an idea of a support network if something isn't right, which means also giving yourself permission to talk about this. So those are really, really important things um, and that's where peer networks help, but also just having role models or people that you can look up to and go, well, they opened up about their mental health. We realized, for instance, that when we talk about entrepreneurs and business builders, we kind of extended a definition to also bring in kind of high performers like sports people or actors and people who, who go through similar journeys, but we don't call them entrepreneurs, right? And we had Dame mm. Kelly Holmes, the Olympian on our podcast, who was so open about her struggles, but it all starts with, at some point, you need to learn to acknowledge what's happening. And if you have a physical injury, it's there. If it's a mental health thing, which could be comparable to a physical injury, you just ignore it because it's not visible. Hmm. So I suppose if I, if I was to look at sort of what I'm hearing for your sort of 100 million tip, I feel like you're heading direction of almost <laughs> look after yourself, like check in, check in with yourself to make sure that you're ready for that journey. Am I, am I heading, am I taking the wrong direction? If you're heading towards a question, I think the question is, and this applies to both business and mental health and your own well-being, is don't be afraid to ask for help. Mm. I think for me, it's always been fascinating to see entrepreneurs who don't think it's okay to ask for help from a business perspective. It's okay to hustle for money. It's okay to kind of, ask people uh, for business input, et cetera. But somebody just go, you know what, I'm struggling. How do I manage my team? Or I've got this people problem. Or So these things would normally come through in the one-to-one -one conversations we would have with the founders, especially with the CEOs. And this is where suddenly you realize, I'm not your dad, but I'm talking to you like I, I could be your dad. Uh, but it's that creating an environment where people can open up because people are usually, they have a line of what is acceptable, what is acceptable to ask for help and what isn't purely from a business, from a how-do-I-do-things perspective. And the other side is, of course, asking for help when you're really struggling mm. and opening up to your significant other or to a friend or to a professional, but going, something isn't right, something's off, help me. Mm. What, what, what percentage of people do you think are, <laughs> have you seen capable of doing that? Well, we're talking about something that I experienced through the accelerator close to seven, eight years ago, it's changed a little bit. Um, it's a very low percentage. It's really a very low percentage. 
I, c- I can give you a different flavor how this works. So we bring these people on the podcast, which are usually people that we either know through our network or they were introduced to us because they have a story. And we have a prep call. And we tell them what we want to discuss on the prep call. And they open up during the prep call. And then the podcast, we record for an hour, knowing that the end result is going to be edited to something like 30 to 40, maybe 45 minutes. It usually takes about half an hour until we get to the juicy stuff. Mm. So we had one situation where we were talking to tell us about a bit about your journey, etc. And at some point we had to go, can you please tell us about your marriage falling apart? Because we've heard now that you were struggling to raise the money. That didn't make it to the podcast, uh, to the, the episode, but people are still so reluctant to talk about the juicy bits, the really difficult bits. So even people who agree to come on a podcast about mental health entrepreneurs. <laughs> so the percentage is low. And it's it's because it's considered as weakness to acknowledge that you're struggling with something. Uh, what will my investors think? That's a big one. Especially when you look at when you talk to founders and you kind of ask them, when did the problems really start? It's usually when you got external investment. And then mm. it's like one of my big bugbears is that a lot of the VCs don't even acknowledge that there's a problem. So we've done a lot of research, but also we, all three of us have been in the industry for a long time. So we already knew what people were thinking. And it's amazing to see that when you talk to big name venture capital firms, you get... Uh, Everything from I don't care to entrepreneurs are intrinsically flawed. So it's part of the game to, yeah, maybe there is something, but why should we do something about it? And there's very few who actually go, maybe we're part of the problem and we need to change something. Right. So I think that's part of it is also when you are in the middle of everything and going. And, and I'm, I'm, I had a conversation with, with an entrepreneur about six weeks ago who was telling me that he had suicidal thoughts. And he said, I can't talk to my investors. I need a break, but I don't, I can't talk to my investors about it. And then he did talk to that, to, 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 to his investment, to the people investing in him. And one of them was a, a an angel investor who put in a quarter of a million uh, sterling. And, and she ultimately told him she doesn't care. So you get that. And how do you deal with that? How do you process that when you go in? I'm literally at the end, I'm standing at the precipice. And somebody says, yeah, but I put money into you, sort yourself out. So I think we're very far from being able to put in a sizable proportion, percentage to your question. What what is it that you feel, you're saying it it increases with that external funding. What is it about that external funding that sort of ramps up the the mental health problems? Uh, It's pressure. It's expectations, is sometimes misaligned expectations. So you're building a business and you've agreed on certain metrics, maybe at a time where you weren't really sure what you're letting yourself into. So the story of, hey, we raised 10 million is great in the news and you may get a TechCrunch article out of it. But what happens the next day when you realize that now every month or every quarter you need to sit in front of a committee who will be grilling you about what you've done without the compassion to figure out, well, if it's not going well, what was the reason for that? And not just because you haven't done, I don't know, your acquisition strategy well or whatever whatever it takes. So, so it's a bit of a, of a flawed world at the moment. Uh, and it all comes down to people having misaligned interests and no compassion for each other. There feels instinctively like there's a, there's a, there's a big gap then of, of compassionate <laughs> <laughs> compassionate VCs. Like if you can protect your investments, both types of the business and the individuals, 
someone's going to prove that 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 leads to better long-term returns it's happening it's slowly happening it started growing we started talking probably about six months ago maybe a little bit longer to a company in berlin called masawa who is a mental health impact fund so they invest in startups that are looking to change the world from a mental health impact perspective but at the same time kind of practicing what they're preaching they call it uh, nurture capital mm. and there's a few uh there's vcs like we had a wonderful woman from vc in in israel uh called f2 ventures and her name was noah she they put a playbook together for vcs and how they can actually apply a different mindset from the selection of the companies that they invest in uh there's uh it's also slowly happening so i've got vc friends who i've known for years who now, especially in the last six months, come sort of knocking on the door going, that mental health thing that you're doing, can you tell me a little bit more about it? And you go, well, when I told you about this 18 months ago when we launched, you were kind of indifferent, but let me be the greater man here. Okay, I'll tell you about it. Thanks for listening today. And hopefully you've taken away one thing to think about or try. Let me know in the comments if there's something you'd like us to explore in future episodes or just reach out on LinkedIn or podcast at district4.io. Let's keep learning and building great companies together.